Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. For this month's episode, Simon Austin spoke to Tony Strudwick, head of performance for the Wales national team and Sheffield Wednesday. Tony talked about the challenges facing practitioners during the coronavirus crisis, the future of sports science, and his memories of working alongside Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. Over to Simon. Thank you very much for joining us on the Training Ground Guru podcast, Tony. Hi, Simon. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a very difficult time for all of us at the moment. How's it affecting you at Sheffield Wednesday? You know, the league keeps getting deferred, so we're not quite sure when we're going to get back playing or whether we're going to get back playing at all. So with the uncertainty comes uh, a lack of clarity. So I think that's affected us from, from, you know, on a bigger piece. But beyond that, it's, it's, it's putting things into perspective in that, you know, it's uh, it's a society issue, and sometimes things are bigger than football. But nonetheless, I mean, what we've had to do at, at Sheffield Wednesday is send send the players individual training programs, home base programs, um, and of course, then we have to start managing a number of different moving parts, Simon, because um, you know the players have now got to self-organise around the constraints in which they've got. So some some live in flats, some have got houses, some have got access to the grass pitches some haven't so you know it's pretty complex in in getting all these programs out but i think the way that we've 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 approached it is that you know we, we've sent them p- potential menus that they can choose on a different day and and i think we, we we're just remaining relatively flexible in in terms of when we can get back into the training ground to uh to resume normal normal training what would a typical day look like for you at the moment well this morning <laughs> i've uh, I've been uh, putting together some pool base sessions, some mm. some cross training competitions, and I think I think with the home base program, because uh, again there are so many moving parts in what what players have access to, we still got to try and make it competitive. So, mm. I mean, the way that we manage it, Simon, is that you know we split the squad in, 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 in into four, and we've got one fitness coach, you know, managing managing a small group, and then you can make it quite competitive as a you know. We've got the defenders together, the midfielders together, so and there's regular communication with them as a group because I think the other thing is that they're still going to want to be connected, and even mm-hmm. though they can't do that physically, they can still do that through, you know, through through the sort of like social social media sort of platforms. They can they can still get get together and still communicate, which which essentially is what they enjoy doing. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still busy, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, daily it changes. Really, the landscape changes of you know when we, when we return to the training ground. When do we resume to training? So, so really, it's just working out kind of different scenarios and and different plans, which which are ever ever changing on a daily basis. And how long do you think it will take the players to get back to match fitness once we do know when they're going back? Because there's well, been quite I mean, a lot of debate it, about that. Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I think it will depend on. Um, I think it will depend on the length of the of the break, Simon. So. I mean, as we currently speak, you know, from actually, from from sort of interaction of training, we're probably six six days out from that period. I mean, I'm guessing at the moment that that we will probably follow government guidelines and be back on the the 13th of April, um, and then we're probably looking really. I mean, I, I would guess that that that, that, that there will be a, a three to four week period before competitive matches start again, and I think the challenge going forward, Simon, is, is that not only have you got to get your players ready again for, 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 for matches if that scenario is going to happen, it's the, the chances are you're going to have to cram nine games into a, a relatively short period of time. So mm. not only have you got to get them right for the first match, the chances are you're going to have a turnover, turnover of games every three to four days. Yeah. Then, you know, again, different scenarios that you're saying, well, OK, have we got the opportunity to, to, to organise some, you know, and friendlies and, and what that looks like and you know and the bigger picture obviously Simon is that you know there's a wider issue in terms of the health and well-being of everybody involved around it not just the players yeah I was going to ask about that actually because staff have also got to be quite worried about their jobs I guess as well at the moment which is another angle to all of this yeah I think so and I think that comes with you know, I think what we're looking for probably, and I think we'll get it because because they're good organisations. But the Premier League, the EFL, and the PFA, and 
and also you know for those who the, the practitioners the staff that are involved the the fmpa as well looking for some level of, of of guidance really and leadership to say well okay um you know what we what we'd like to do is is, is try to protect jobs because everybody's probably worried at the moment first and foremost it's a physiological worry and i think secondly it's the security in terms of you know where the jobs lie in the future i think i think one thing's for sure simon in that you know the landscape of football is going to change dramatically over the next two years i mean when you think about you know ua for next year that will be you know during the summer then you're talking about the world cup so the actual season as we knew it you know, or, or as we as we've as we've historically known, probably won't get back going again until 2023. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of insecurity around job safety. You know, the number of jobs available, and and then certainly in this period where, you know, financially clubs are going to going to take a little bit of a hit. You know, people are going to be worried, and and, and probably rightly so. Mm-hmm. Do you think the performance staff are the forgotten part of this sometimes? Um, I'd like to think not, Simon. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, that the, 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 the performance staff are a, a really, really important part of the, of the cog and the process. And, yeah, I mean, whether or not, you know, whether or not sort of in, in, in financial, you know, in financial difficulty and, and tough times where redundancy will be made, I really don't know. I hope not for, for the, obviously for the, for the for the for the strength of, of, of UK based practitioners, you'd think that hopefully they'd be they'd be well protected. But um, I think it, it depends on the club. I think it depends on the support staff and the budgets that are available. So I think it's, it's pretty contextual. But you'd like to think not, and you'd like to think that there'd be some level of reasoning going forward to say, well, okay, listen, let, let's try and make sure that as an industry, and I actually think that in the UK we have some fantastic practitioners as an in- industry. You know, we'll look to protect uh, the, 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 the support staff and the support teams. And your other job is with the Welsh national team with Ryan Giggs. How, how has all of this affected the work you do there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think we, we were half expecting it. Obviously, when you know, when, when the news feed started to come out in January and February, we you know we we carried on business as usual until UEFA made the decision that everything would be suspended, but. I mean, pretty much. I mean, you know, there's not a lot really. I mean, there's no games being played, and sort of grassroots levels sort of closed down a little bit. So, I mean, realistically, Simon, I mean, as it currently stands, uh, the UEFA program will resume in September, but again, we've got to be flexible around that. So, um, you know, I think, I think, logistically and planning-wise, I think. You know, postponing the, the, the UEFA Championships to next year is is not a big issue because all the plans were set in place for for our European campaign this year, and we're just rolling through to next year. So, you know, we're fortunate we had we had some solid people working in and around us, the team administrators and the staff that everything's in place for next year. So, yeah, it's it's a delay, it's a wait, but I think you know it'll just be we'll, we'll just roll that through to to next season. Yeah. And how have you found this first season at Sheffield Wednesday? Because it was quite sort of tumultuous from the start, really, wasn't it? You joined when Steve Bruce was manager, and then within a few weeks there was a change of manager. Yeah, um, how's it I, been overall? Yeah, I think I had three managers in about eight weeks. Right. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's been great. I've loved it. I mean, I think it's it's been good getting back um, and immersing myself in 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 club football and. Uh, uh, and in fact, I've really enjoyed the championship. And you, you bump into to, to strength and conditioning coaches and, and practitioners along the way. And, and I do think there's some excellent, really, really, really good staff that are working in in, in the championship. And I mean, what you find in, in the championship, Simon, is that you know lesser budgets, um, so and then smaller staff, smaller support staff. But the actual experience they get in terms of you know, full-on immersion in, in, in making an impact on player performances, you know, it, it can be far greater than, than getting getting lost in a big organisation with a with a big Premier League club where you've got, you know, a number of staff and intern models and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed sort of connecting with a, with, with a different network of people. Um, I've certainly enjoyed, the, you know, being in, 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 in day-to-day and, and being on the grass because I think, I mean, even the period I had to, 
the period I had at Manchester United in the last two years and, and the, the last 18 months at Wales, it, I think when you sit behind a de- desk and you come away from the grass a little bit, I think you, you can become de-skilled really, really quickly, Simon. And I think that was that was one of the reasons for me to, to get back really onto the grass. And, mm. and I mean, I noticed that you know, even in a short period of, of, of two to three years, ideas and, and, and different ways of doing things and new structures, they're, they're continuously changing, working with different periodization models and stuff. So, you know, I think that the game's changed massively in three, four years, and, and, and it's been good for me to get back and, and, and get, up, get up to date with things again. Mm. What are the main ways it's changed, do you think? I just think that, I mean, when you look at it from the outside, you know, traditionally we had English-based head coaches that traditionally, really, it was it was a case of, you know, sort of path dependence and, and whatever they did as players, they, they took in, into their management style and how they prepared. I think, I mean, when you look at the Premier League in the last 10 years and even in the last few years, you've had an influx of Southern European staff, you know, you know Spanish staff, Portuguese staff. You've had the, you, you know, you've had Jurgen Klopp from Liverpool and I think, I think, you know, in English football as we know it has really benefited from different ideas. I mean, we're at a time when you've got, you know, Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, you've got, you know, Jurgen Klopp, you've got all these fantastic coaches that are operating in the, in the Premier League with different ideas. And I think, you know, the net effect of that will be the next generation of fitness coaches and sports scientists would be, would have been exposed to new ideas, new ways of doing things. And I think, you know, what you then get is that, you know, a bastardization of all the different models put together and then people creating their own ways of doing things and, you know, it's continuously evolving. And, and I think that's probably where it's changed over the last sort of like five, certainly the last five years. And I think I think we're all better for it, Simon. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I know we have the staff profiles on the website and... You could you could maybe say that the British practitioners are becoming a bit of an endangered species, really, especially in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, do, do you think we've got a kind of S and C or a sports science culture among in Britain at the moment, or is it just a bit more global? Have we lost that? I don't think we've lost it. I mean, I think the. I mean, my own personal opinion is that we have some we have some brilliant practitioners in this. I mean, I I went into Sheffield Wednesday this year and. You know, I'm working with staff that I think are as good as anything I've worked with, you know, in different models and, and in, in different countries. So I think we have some fantastic, we have a great university program that, 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 that prepares from a, from a philosophical and foundation. We, we, you know, we're coming out of, you know, an internship model and there have been some great internship models, Leicester City being one, for example, and Kevin Paxton and the work that he's done with Leicester. And, you know, I think we... we you know the industry itself is is really really strong. I think the challenge we have, size, not necessarily necessarily the quality or the depth of quality. I think it's opportunity. Mm. And, and like you said before, if you know this kind of transition transition model that, that that now is evident in the in the Premier League, where a manager will come in from a different country, they'll bring in their own staff. You know, and you know the existing staff have two op- options: either stay and work underneath it, or move on to another job. Um, and I think that's what you've got. I think it's more about opportunities opposed to, you know, the, the quality being out there. But and I, I really do think the quality, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the quality is as good as anything in the world. You know, when you go across to the USA, you go down to Australia. These models. I really do think we've we've got some ex- excellent practitioners in this country. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder what can be done to raise the profile or get that message across. Really, is it just need people to keep saying it? Do you think? I think so, Sai. I mean, I think. I mean, I mean, you've only got to look at this week. I mean, you know, you know, we've got some innovation going around this week in in different kind of webinars and sharing of information, and I think there's some real high quality content going on. Mm. So that's there, I, but I think. The, the challenge has always been, Simon, in, in that, you, you know, who, who would protect, you know, when a, when a big club like, a, you know, let's take, for example, a Man City, if a Man City, if, if a manager came in from out of town, at town, an Italian or Portuguese or Spanish coach came in, you know, you know the, decision, the decision will be made that the coach would probably want to bring his own staff in. Now, that's understandable that, you know, the executive level, they're going to support that. You know, I would still like to see, 
that Englishness or that Britishness retained within a club club environment because I think that's important for the development of our own of our own game. Um, so, but you know, I, I think it, it's about banging the drum. It's about you know people getting out there and sharing ideas and and and, and showing value. I mean, I mean the, the other thing around that is that you know I think in the USA and you know the MLS in, in the last few years you've seen you've seen a migration of British. British-based practitioners going out to the MLS. Yeah. Um, Gary Walker's been out there. Johnny Northeast. So we we are starting to 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 transition people from our country into other countries, and that's a good thing, I think, for the industry as well, Simon. And do you think the head of performance model will help that? In that you ideally have like a figurehead like yourself who gives that continuity, and you don't necessarily have to change the staff every time the manager changes. No, 100% agree with you, Simon. You know, you're going for when we talk about you know high performance models and a, and a director of high performance. I think that that's definitely the way to go. And I think that the big part around that is that you know traditionally people that have gone into them kind of that them roles have, have also sort of been managing a training process as, as tr- training process as well. So it might be a doctor, a physiotherapist, or a, or a fitness coach. I think. What, what director of performance roles will give you? They would, someone who can manage the staff, someone who can manage the long-term vision of, of the department, someone who can manage the long-term vision of the club. Yeah. And I think that, that would really, I mean, th- these roles, albeit at the moment, they're, they're pretty kind of, kind of narrow in, 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 in scope in, in terms of what clubs are in a position to, 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 to host them. But I certainly feel that that would protect, A, the... the the, the UK industry and B, I think it would club uh, protect the long-term benefits of the club. Yeah, because yeah. it's about consistency. And I think, you know, the flip side of that is that when a new manager does come in, in that the performance and support teams have, have got to be flexible in adaptation. You've got to adapt to the new manager. It, it's a two-way process, Simon. Mm. It's not a case of saying, well, you know, at, at Man United, for example, we've always done it this way. You know, you, you've got to. You know, you've got just to have a strength of voice, but you, you've got to try and evolve, you know, in, into a into a functioning unit where you get the best of both worlds, and and you manage the manager and you manage manage the club going forward. It's always got to remain an art, I guess, and human yeah. relationships are always going to be key. Yeah, I mean, I think I've I think I've always said that you know, you know, data and analytics should guide, not drive the the, the training process, and I think what we've seen. I mean, the rise of, of technology and GPS technology in particular, is, is, it's been great. I mean, I can't say it's not been great for, for sport because, you know, what we've also got is that, is that we, we've got a generation of, of, of sports scientists that, that really are, you know, there's, there's some pretty smart kids out there that are working across, across the different athletes and the different clubs. So, you know, the, the knowledge base has, has really been pushed on. But I think when we look at, human performance in particular Simon it's very very complex and you know and I've always said that you can't always have that growing reliance on spreadsheets because we train athletes not 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 spreadsheets Mm. and I think that that was that was really you know that was really in essence what it was is that and and I've always said that that you can learn a lot from data but not always as much as you expect so Mm. I think it's a part of the it's a part of the process but it shouldn't it shouldn't it should guide, not drive. And I think that's really, really important. And that's probably a massive thing that's come across to me, actually, from doing the site, that the, the human relationships are absolutely crucial. And maybe that's not what's taught on the university courses, you know, but any good practitioner needs to have that. Absolutely. I mean, 100%. I mean, when you look at, I mean, I think you flagged it up recently, you look at uh, a good friend of mine, Barry Drust, he looked at touch points between player and sports science department. Was it like 49 touch points yeah you know i mean there's a lot of touch points and i think that the, the kind of connecting and building relationships with, with an athlete for me is still the most important so in this period now it, it, you know the first thought sh- your first thoughts every day is that when, when you're dealing with your athletes that are working mobile from home is that you know you, you, you send them a message how you're doing not a case of have you hit x y and z today mm-hmm. and i think that's really really important so the soft piece, the soft skill side of it is really, really important. Now, unfortunately, and I think this is probably, um, it's a, probably a natural consequence in that, you know, when, when we move towards this kind of surveillance 
environment that, that's now quite prevalent in, in, in some clubs is that, you know, invariably, you know, who's got the, the iPad first thing in the morning? It'll be the intern. And I think what's now happened, Simon, is that, you know, I mean, it's a really, really important that that first contact of a day between an athlete and a coach or an athlete and a fitness coach is really, really important. You know, it should be good morning, engage, try and connect, try and touch every player in terms of human human contact. But I think what's happened is that that really, really important part of the day is now subcontracted to either an intern that's very, very inexperienced mm. or players walk in and, and, and their first contact in the training process is a, lap, is a laptop or an iPad. And I, I think, I'm not so sure that that's really beneficial to A1 building a really um, collective environment. And two, I'm, I'm not, not quite sure that, you know, that that's the right way to go in, in terms of athlete engagement because essentially that's what we do. We work with athletes. Yeah. We want to push athletes. We want to push human performance. But you've also got to engage with them. And I think the best coaches will be the ones in the future that still manage the, the science with the art of engaging with the athletes. And I think that's really, really important. And, yeah. and you're right, that, that's not always taught on a university course, but that's certainly something that should be developed and certainly shouldn't be subcontracted to the, to the least experienced yeah. person in the building. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd not thought of that before. Um, and I was just wondering, actually, I was going to come on to Manchester United later, but was that one of Sir Alex Ferguson's great strengths, that the interpersonal and the, the soft skills, like you say? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, um, when, when you look at his leadership style, it, it, it was an authentic leadership style. So that was like building trust. And that's really, really important, building trust with his staff, um, you know, having sort of open, honest sort of rapport with, with people. And I think that was probably one of his greatest strengths, along with a number of other things, was, was just his ability to connect with people. And I think, you know, that, that's quite inspirational as, you know, for me going in and, you know, the first day on the job, him saying, right, the players are downstairs, go and warm them up, and that was it. Mm. You know, it wasn't a, a case of, you know, from from, from the, at my first interaction with him, it was about him giving me autonomy to do the job, but him trusting me to do the job. And I think, you know, trust is a false multiplier, Simon. If, mm. if I give you trust, you then don't want to let me down by, you know, by abusing that. So I think that was one of the, the, the great things about it and, you know, having that kind of transparent, honest, sometimes, you know, very honest, you know, if a player's not doing doing what they're told or a member of staff are not doing their job, then he would tell you. But, um, you know, the ability to be to, to be consistent with that and, and listen and build. And, and, and I think Rally Moolenstein said as well is that, you know, in, in all of that, having fun was a mm. big part of, building that rapport you know you know i'm sure that you, you know when, when we went to work you know, or, you know whether it be now so it's 2013 now wasn't it seven years ago mm. you know players lo would love coming in players wouldn't have wanted to go from the training ground staff would have wanted to stay there and i think that's for me that's that's a thriving high performance environment in in that where everybody's connected there's a bit of trust there's empowerment autonomy within that but you know, that becomes really, really engaging. And I think that was probably one, one of his greatest strengths for sure. There's a good picture of you on the site with him, actually, where you're really laughing at something. And, and Rennie said that was a big thing with him. You know, he's never laughed so much, which is probably not what a lot of us would think of him. But um, so it sounds like that was definitely the case. Yeah, and I think, and again, what you've, you, you're kind of getting this transitional model is, is that, I mean, I've said that before, is that, you know, when you look at the, the great intuitive managers... And then really the, the change now towards the modern-day coach. And I think the modern-day coach is, is exposed to so much high-quality material in terms of you know, game models and, and sports science and so on and so forth. But that management piece, that bit about, well, actually, you know, you're not just an iPad coach. You're actually a human being delivering rapport, you know, delivering a contact with, with people. I think that's... That, that's that that really is is one of the most important things for for a successful uh, environment. And I suppose even going back a decade was a period when a lot of tech was starting to come in. And I know you've always been very interested in that. How did he deal with tech? How did he decide what to adopt and what not to? And 
how much time did he give to it as well? well I think, I think you know, you going back sort of ten years ago. I think we we first started using GPS around two thousand and ten, Simon. Right. Um, and it was a response really because much of our training model beforehand was based on you know heart rate monitoring and and uh, sort of like time you know RP and time and stuff. So. I think in Australia, pre-2010, I think GPS had become the norm, so they were probably a little bit ahead of the curve on that. And, and we had some guys in from um, the AFL, and they, they came and spoke, and you know we looked at them trends, and we said, well, okay, we, we, we'd give it a go. So I think the manager was always of the, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson would, would always start the season by looking at, okay, where, how can we get a competitive advantage? And I think he then he then sort of empowered the staff, you know, the, the team, Dr. Steve McNally, the physiotherapist, Rob Swire and his team. And, you know, as long as we we were working within the ethical boundaries of what we should and shouldn't be doing, I think he trusted for us to do that. But I think the, the, the great thing about Sir Alex Ferguson was almost like he was continuously on that treadmill. So that treadmill kept on going and, you know, he constantly updated himself. He constantly recycled you know, assistant managers. He constantly recycled new ideas, and even though he managed to stay at Manchester United for, you know, for, for 20, 25 years, I think the great thing about Sir Alex and, and the Premier League as well at the time is that, you know, he, he continuously evolved his ideas. And you know, I wouldn't say that he always understood the numbers and stuff, but that that was our job to make it contextual and, and intuitive for, for him to understand it. And I think that's probably. It's not always blaming the coach for not understanding data and numbers. Sometimes it's our responsibility to ensure that we feed it back in in a kind of you know contextual or, or a way that makes sense for the for the coach to to, to recognise what what he's telling him. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I was hearing that about Jose Mourinho actually that he he likes things to be visual. He likes graphics in particular. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you've probably got to adapt between managers. How how are you going to present your information and give quite a bit of thought to that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, if I'd have put a, a twenty-page report on, on on Sir Alex's Alex's desk, I mean, the chances of of him a having the time to read it and b, you know, the motivation to read it would have probably been been, been pretty low. <laughs> but you know, so you, you you know, you probably have a snapshot, a window of opportunity, you know, every day, every other day to really, you know, to get that that quick quick message across now other managers might be different other coaches will be different but again i think that that's knowing the people you work with and and again as a practitioner understanding you know what makes sense for them and, and how they absorb information mm. and it seems that he was very loyal to his staff as well so i'm just thinking say you, you do hear at clubs sometimes if a player has a fallout with a particular physio or something like that the players can hold sway but how would Sir Alex generally deal with that? No, I think I think when you look at it, I mean, particularly in in, in the latter years, I mean, there were there were were some staff that that came in and and, and were, were, you know were either sort of recycled out or found other jobs. But but generally, you had consistency of staff over a long period of time. So you had Brian McClay was the academy manager. You had. Les Kershaw before him. You had Paul McGuinness, who was the under-18s coach, the youth team coach. So you had a staff, a very small staff and very intimate staff, might add as well. And I think I've also said that that was one of the other great strengths of Man United in that there was intimacy and the the staff around the training, the the, the training facility was was quite tight knit. And I think that that in itself is 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 very important, particularly with the expanding support staffs and, and so on and so forth but I think what you had you certainly had a lot of loyalty between uh, manager and staff staff and managers and I think even even with the players and you look at the, the, the group of players that, that played into their mid to late 30s and I think there was always a, a level of loyalty and I think, I think again once again that, that's a force multiplier but I think I think Sir Alex was, was, was astute enough to understand Simon that you know, players can sometimes come and go, um, but in, in, in invariably you'll have certain players that, that that won't sort of adhere to some of the standards of, of the staff. And uh, but he would always be supportive of, of, of his staff, particularly you know, uh, particularly in, in challenging circumstances. And 
did you always find it easy to get that balance between being friendly with the players but having that distance so they respect you and vice versa and you don't get too pally? Is that a hard line sometimes? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think... I think it depends on, on, on the age of, of the practitioner. So I'll flip that back a little bit because I mean, it was something that was always con- I've always been conscious of, particularly in, in the early part of my career. I mean, I, I came into my first job at Coventry City and I was only, I was only 24, 25, Simon. Mm-hmm. So invariably, most of the players that I was working with were of a similar age um, and I was quite young. And I think you know, the big challenge for young practitioners is that you know, not to get starry-eyed and, and not to get too close and, and too familiar with the players. I think mm. um, the fact that I moved the early part of my career, I, I, I lasted two, three years, and I moved on, on to different jobs. I think that in itself, you know, having that, that movement and flexibility to move on and the opportunity, albeit, um, meant that I didn't get too comfortable, I didn't get too complacent with the players. But I think... Um, you know, by the time and then fast forward, by the time I got to, to Blackburn Rovers and and, uh, and and Manchester United, I think I was I was at a you know I was at an age really where I could sort of step back away from it, um, and I think that's always the challenge. Where is that performance line? You know, I mean, I've never been one to, to sort of to go out with players and have too much you know communication outside of work because I think it's important that. That invariably, you know, you, you do work with people, and, and, and essentially you, you're there to to assess players and work with players and drive standards. So I think that balance, you know, is very very important. It wasn't it wasn't a major issue for me at that period, but you know, I can see certainly young people coming into the industry, and I've seen it. You know, a number of clubs I've been at with, and I've always tried to warn the players not to get too close and, and comfortable with the players. So was Ryan Giggs a player that you'd always had that rapport with, that you're obviously working with now with Wales? Yeah, I mean, but it, I mean, it was interesting because you know there was a. I think when I got the job at, at Wales, there was a there was a, a report that you know Ryan Giggs has brought his mate in. I mean, you know, <laughs> other than the fact that you know en- end of season functions and stuff, I'd never been out with him in my life. So mm. um, you know, I think what you do is that I think. You know, if you retain a level of professionalism and professional distance, I think you, you you gain that kind of rapport and respect with the players. And you know, Ryan was at a period of his. You know, I mean, I was just very very fortunate to be around so many great players that that continued to work well into their late thirties. You know, we had sort of Carrick, Ferdinand, Vidic, Evra, you know, Scholes, Giggs, and, and and Gary Neville. I mean, so you know that level of professionalism and. And what you had at, at that group, that group of, of players in particular, they were the incredibly professional human beings. So it wasn't a case at that stage of their career that they would go out and you would have an opportunity to do that. I think, I think with Ryan, sort of having worked with him over a period of over ten years, I think there was a there was a it's certainly a professional there was a professional kind of relationship that there was a level of trust, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why. You know, when he got the job at Wales, then we approached me. I mean, you know, since then, you know, since I've been working with Ryan at Wales, you know, we, we, we do spend more time socially and we do connect more time outside of work. But, yeah, I wouldn't say that, that, that we were mates when, when when we were playing, but, you know, because it was very professional. And I think mm. that, that that's always the challenge that you've got to try and get that balance on. Yeah. And has he taken quite a lot of the, the values from Manchester United with him into the Wales job? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think trust in you, if you've seen that. Yeah. I mean, if you, you look at sort of, you know, the, the group that, that we've had coming through, we've got some fantastic, fantastic talent coming through the, uh, for, for, for the Welsh system. And, you know, the FAW Trust have done a great job and Grassroots have done a great job of getting these young players through. So, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, Simon, it, it's, you know, going away. I mean, I've loved going away with Wales and working with, with the Welsh players and, you know, really speaking, it's very—it's been very, very similar to to my time at Manchester United. The way we, you know, the, the way we prepare for games, the, the the way that training looks and feels, and you know, ensuring that we, there's, a, there's a high level of planning and detail and professionalism. But you know, along the backdrop of that, you know, you know, we, we enjoy what we do as well. So you know, outside of that, we, we 
there's a good bit of fun and banter that goes with it. Going back to Manchester United, actually, I think you were there during the most successful period in their history. You know, Champions League wins. I think I've written down about seven trophies when you were there. Um, what was it like in that year afterwards? Because um, obviously a huge change after Sir Alex going. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it was a tra- it was a really big transitional period, and you know, um, for me personally, it, it it was business as usual because the role when David Moyes came in, I had, I had a chat with David, and you know, he brought uh, I think he brought three coaches with him. Um, so my job as a fit, as, as head of fitness and head, head of performance didn't really change. So I mean, so mm. from my perspective, it didn't really really change. I think. You know, I think there were some significant changes to the coaching staff. Uh, obviously, really, Mullenstein went and McFeelan and, you know, I mean, but it, it was a natural process of, I mean, you, you can't, you know, you know. I, I think David Moyes wanted people around him that, that he knew and that had a sort of intimate knowledge of how he worked. So from from that perspective, thing, things things did change. I think the whole landscape of, you know, within within sort of like within a season, you know, the whole club changed really in terms of losing not only Sir Alex Ferguson, but we lost David Gill, who's a chief exec. We lost mm-hmm. other key staff, and you know, so you, you probably lost, you know, at that end of that 2013 season, you probably lost a hundred years of corporate knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of changes, and it, it wasn't just on the on the playing side or the coaching staff. There, there were changes in and around the club that that were very very different. So. Uh, it, it was a period of transition, and and it, it was it was you know, in fairness to David Moyes, it was a tough job to come into, mm. um, because the expectation at Manchester United is always high, Simon. Yeah, I think that the other thing is that, I mean, realistically, when you go back now, I mean, David lasted what eight or nine months, so he didn't have didn't have a, a long period at all, mm. um, you know, and, and I think w- with that, I think you know, I think. That, the new the new way of doing things started to be initiated. The, the, the different departments started to grow and expand, and you had an expansion of, of the club that was that was very very different from what it was before. Yeah. And how did you look at that yourself? Did you think um, he's making a mistake here because I know how good the people are who are going, or do you think I'm going to try and be open minded about this and uh, go along with it? Yeah, I mean. I... I think there's two ways of looking at. One is that, you know, just because it always was successful uh, and a model was successful doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be successful in the future. Mm. So, I think when you have that change, um, I think as practitioners you've got to try and embrace it, and you've got to say, well, you can't keep second guessing. And well, you know, I think the worst thing that anybody would want to say, well. You know, so Alex didn't do this this way, or Man United don't do it this way because a new coach coming in has new innovation, and I think sometimes organisations fail. Not so Man United have, but organisations fail because they cling on to old ideas and and sometimes outdated ideas. So mm. I think it, it works two ways, Simon. Um, I think the flip side of that is that you know when you walk into a, a you know the the, the, the kind of a rich cultural historical club like Manchester United, there are a lot of kind of long-standing traditions and and, and and complex interactions that you've got to deal with. You know the way the way the club works, the way they look, um, you know the way they operate, the way the playing style, and so on and so forth. How, what player you recruit, and all these kind of things. You know that you know some of them ideas were entrenched in in in, the way, in, in Sir Alex Ferguson's way of doing it. I think. You know, going back to it, I think Sir Alex Ferguson would have been the first to say, "Look, I don't want to get involved. I need to step away from it because what I don't want to do is, you know, I've had I've had my time. I've, I've built something that was incredibly special, but the next guy that comes in has really got to try and shape that, shape that his own way. And I think that's important as well. Then under Louis Van Gaal, you moved mainly to work with the academy, um, as I remember. What happened there? Because I, I don't think you've spoken about that before, really. No, not really. I mean, I, I think. I think essentially, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 had a, I had a good working relationship with Louis. I mean, fundamentally, Simon, I think when, when Louis van Gaal came into to Manchester United, he, he brought his own model with him, which was his way of preparing, and he brought, you know, his, his own head of physiology that, that essentially, you know, he was driving the program. So it wasn't a case of me falling out with Louis or, or anything else. It was a case that I, I felt 
I felt pretty much redundant in the role that I was in. So, mm. so uh, and I think at, at the same time, I'd, I'd just come come away with working with, with England and uh, the, the 2014 World Club, and um, I think Manchester United were, were against me, me going away with England. So, uh, you know, that stopped. I felt that, you know, I had to try and carve out some autonomy in in, 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 in ensuring that, I, you know, that, that I wanted to go in every day and feel that I was making a difference. Mm. So that that decision really to drive down, irrespective of sort of external reports and and so on and so forth, was, was probably driven by by myself and, and well supported by uh, certainly the chief exec uh, Ed Woodward and, and, and the other staff, mm. but. I mean, I, I think there lies an issue is that you can be at a club for so many years like I was at 10 years and then a new model comes in and, and, and you have a choice. You know, you, you can be, and I think that's where I felt, whether rightly or wrongly, and um, I felt that, you know, I wanted to go in and add value and I felt mm. that I could offer more value working, working in the academy setting. And, and if I'm honest, moving down from the first team to the academy, the first 18 months of that role, the first two years of that role, I loved it, Simon. It was brilliant. Yeah. You know, and you know, of that group that came out of that, it's you know, you're seeing the fruition of that now. It's you know, your your Jesse Lingards, the Marcus Rashfords, and these were the kids that were coming through the academy. So, you know, I didn't see it as a step down by no stretch of the imagination. I, I, I still felt that I was working at Manchester United. I'm working with some of the best talented kids in the world, mm. um, and it was great to see them grow and develop. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean that—that's essentially a nutshell. That's what it was. I mean, I mean, I—I I thought Louis Van Gaal brought some fantastic ideas to Manchester United. You know, the, the way that he prepared his his attention to detail. You know, redefining his coaches. I mean, all his coaches could, you know, had, had the capability to clip and code and deliver. You know, you know, in-depth analysis was was fantastic and. You know, I still work with one of Louis Van Van Gaal's coaches now, Albert Stuyvesant. Right. Yeah. You know, we have a great working relationship. I, you know, I, I, I've got the utmost respect for him, and I did did with Louis Van Gaal as well. Yeah. It, it makes you wonder, looking from the outside, whether there's been that kind of consistent culture or vision, really, at United, in terms of playing style, um, training philosophy personnel you know people like yourself going um do, do you think that because you know Mourinho is very very different from Van Gaal very different from Moyes um is that something you felt that they lost maybe that the values and philosophy a bit I, I, I wouldn't say that Simon but I think I think again one of the great things about about Louis Van Gaal when he came in is that he really did embrace the ideas of the sports science department um and you know, even though I stepped away from it, and, and Rich Hawkins t- took over, and and Gary Walker, and, and they had some great staff in place there. Um, you know, Louis really embraced the ideas of the sports science department, and I think, I think, I think that period of when Louis was in. I mean, you look back on now, and I think a lot of the staff really enjoyed the way that he worked. Um, I mean, it was very different. I mean, I was I was probably too far removed from the first team operation, so it would be unfair of me to, to make that comment about Jose Mourinho. So, um, but, but Jose came in with his own ideas and, you know, very successful ideas that he's had in the past. So, mm. you know, whether, whether they've had the consistency or not, I, I'm not quite sure. I think, I think that being said, Simon, that they've had, you know, the, the medical department have been pretty solid and, and consistent at Manchester United now for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah. You know, and they've still got a lot of lot of members of staff in place that have been there over ten years. So I think you know the, the staff have been there, but you know I think the one thing about Manchester United and, and one of the great strengths is that you know not a lot you know people go about their business and and, and, and just evolve and, and move on. An interesting thing actually that a lot of people might not know about you is that you've actually trained as a sporting director, haven't you? Which is the role a lot of people say United need. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've I've got the sporting directors course, which I really enjoyed. But um, you know, having that and actually sort of like taking over that role at Man United, uh, you know, there's a gulf between it. Um, no, I mean, I think I think what you're looking at is that what what does a future hold for football? What does a future hold for not just Manchester United, but I think what you've seen, Simon, and you've alluded to it in enough of your pieces, is that 
the, the rising role and the growing influence of the sporting director. With, you know, I'm pretty sure that that's essential in, in modern day football. What that looks like, you know, is is very contextual. Uh, and what what the kind of qualifications of sporting director are, are very very diverse. I mean, you know, when you look at some of the, the foreign based models, it's pretty much the sporting director was really really driving the recruitment recruitment process. Um, I think you know the modern day sporting director not only has a, an understanding of, of, of the recruitment process, but has an intimate knowledge of sports science, the coaching process, the recruitment process and obviously uh, football operations. Just going all the way back sort of 25 years ago, I suppose, when you were at Loughborough and you did your sports science degree, um, what, was it quite a new degree at that time? Was it quite a new profession? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the way that it evolved and, um, you know, Loughborough was, was, was historically a physical at PE college. So it was, it was a college that was really for teacher training and phys ed. And I think, you know, they were... They were Sort of one of the first universities, along with kind of you know Leeds Carnegie and and Brunel University, that that, that sort of offered this, this, this these sports science courses. I mean, it was certainly in its infancy. Um, so when I arrived, I think uh, I mean Dave Redding had just started working with I think the uh, the RFU then. Mm. So Dave David Dave Dave Redding went went to to, to Loughborough as well. We had probably one or two other people that were at Loughborough University that were just starting to get into clubs. But, but certainly when, when, when I started my degree in 1992, all you really had, the model that was in place in terms of fitness support and conditioning was you know, one or two kind of ex-athletes or ex-phys-ed you know, specialists that would go from club to club. They'd spend a, you know, a day at Leeds, a day at Aston Villa and, and move around. Right. Um, so when I graduated in, in 95, 96, there were probably only two or three jobs across the whole of football, really, that were oh, really? hard and, hard and fast oh. sports science. And I think Chris Barnes at, at Middlesbrough, he was the late 90s, but he was one of the first, probably one of the first ones, Chris, right. um, to, to really have, and, and, you know, fair play to... To Steve Gibson for having the insight really to, to to support the players from that perspective, but yeah, they were one of the, one of the first ones. Tottenham Hotspur, so had a sports scientist and under Christian Gross. So you had a few, mm. and and again, I mean, when I started at, at Coventry, I mean, we started doing warm ups with the team, and I remember going to Leicester one day, and all the Leicester players, you know, making fun of us for doing a group warm up. Really? Because back then, you know, huh. ninety. 98, 99 players used to do their own warm-up if they did a warm-up at all. Right, okay. So you look at the evolution, really, in in, in 30 years, and I mean, that's one thing that this current generation of, of practitioners don't, don't thank us for. We had to break down the barriers. Mm. We had to have the arguments with players. We had to, you know, we had to sort of win the managers over, and, you know, and, and it, was, it was a tough sell back then, but, of course, you're a practitioner, and it, it, it's just part and parcel of, the monitoring process and the sports, it's just part and parcel of today's game. We're in the situation now where sports science is the most popular degree. Um, you've got, you know, dozens and dozens of staff at every club, really, at the big clubs. So it's unbelievable to hear what you're saying there about, you know, even warm-ups being unusual back then. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, when you look at it, I mean, I mean certainly, I mean, I've got to say that, that, you know, the growth of sports science, and I mean, Sir Alex Ferguson himself said that, that sports science was one of the, you know, you know one of the sort of the, the, the key positives, you know, in his coaching life, lifetime that he saw, you know, massive benefits of nutrition and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, looking back, you, you know, what, what sports science is a bit like the kind of Monty Python sketch, you know, what have the Romans done for us, but what sports science has done football, I think, Footballers, you know, footballers definitely benefit from sports science and sports science models. I think, you know, going into the future, it's about well, how can we now really create and not necessarily reboot, but redefine what the player experience looks like. And I think future models will look at that. I mean, the game will continuously evolve. Site, mm. I think, we, we, I think we accept that. You know, it, it's, you know, we're going to look at ways to build capacity and robustness, and you know, the changing nature of you know, playing year-round year, year football and, 
you know, having more games and squeezing more games in because that that might be a you know one one of the sort of like the side effects of of, of the break in, in the schedule at the moment. So he'll be looking to you know how much we can uh, our players can play and, and so on and so forth. But sports science really has got a foundation in the game to to, to really support it going forward. And you know I think it, with that comes responsibility, Simon, to ensure that it's a brand of sports science that a is coach friendly and, and certainly more importantly it's got to be player friendly yeah. and are you optimistic about the future and that that will happen yeah i am i am i think i mean i think it's going to be there's going to be certainly a move towards and i've said this before i said it a few years ago actually i think there's certainly going to be a move towards the individual athlete so already what we what we're seeing is this rise in you know players going outside of a club environment we've had it in america for years but having the team around the team, and I'm not just talking about a sports scientist, I'm talking about a match analyst, I'm talking about a personal coach, I'm talking about a psychologist, a nutritionist, you know, at the top level. We're not talking about all levels and all echelons of football. I think what we're moving towards is this kind of, you know, the individual athlete and, and the identity of the athlete having player, having, having people around them. I think that's a major, major challenge for the football club in the future, how you manage all their moving parts, you know, how you manage players going outside of the club. Because, you know, there was a time when Sir Alex Ferguson would say, listen, you know, if you want your, your medical treatment, you want your physio, you stay here. Mm. You don't go travelling. Now, what you see now is commonplace for, you know, players that are injured to, 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 to go to, to all destinations of the globe. So that's changed. You know, and by, by the fact that players are allowed to dictate and, you know, by sort of kind of, you know, medical autonomy, you know, you, you shouldn't deny the players the opportunity. You've got to give them that. But with that comes, you know, the piece in that how as a club we try to manage the individual uh, still in, within a group environment. And I think that's a big challenge. Yes, I'm optimistic about where sports science is going, but, you know, I think the modern-day sports scientist and fitness coach is going to have a lot more sort of complex um challenges than, than, than we had you know 20 30 years ago that's fascinating thanks so much for your time tony brilliant thanks for having me on site thank you for listening to the training ground guru podcast in association with huddle we'll be back next month with another episode in the meantime you can follow our latest updates on the website or on twitter at ground underscore guru